God, I'm just, I'm struck this morning by the reality of what needs to happen. God, we can get our mind around some truths, but for, the, for us to see them as beautiful and to experience them for what they are, we need you to work. We need your spirit to show up and so land them in our heart that your love, God, moves from a, a true idea to an experience of reality. And so, God, I'm just, I'm aware that I, I can't do that, but you can. And so, as I speak, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak to every person here? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to talk about the love of God, which may sound simple, but let me just say, you can know about it, and it might be mildly interesting to you, or you can experience it, and it will change everything about you. Jonathan Edwards described different kinds of knowing as being able to articulate to someone why honey is sweet versus the experience of having honey on your tongue. My prayer is that you would know the love of God like honey on your tongue. I remember very distinctly back when I was in high school, the, the summer between my ninth and tenth grade year, I had a conversation with a friend of mine. And both of us had grown up in church and probably been to many Sunday school classes. Uh, both of us were Christians, and neither of us walking out any massive path of rebellion or anything like that. But as we talked about the love of God, I realized that she knew God in a way that I didn't. See, I, I could have probably taken a doctrine test or a Bible test, and we would have scored pretty similarly on it. But when she spoke of the love of God, it wasn't an idea to her or a concept to her. It was a daily experience. She felt loved by God. She experienced the love of God, and the way that she talked about it left in me a longing to know God like she knew God. And so I think that conversation was part of a distinct turning point in my life that a journey that I've been on since of not just knowing about the love of God but knowing God's love for me. The Apostle John toward the end of his life wrote a letter that would be circulated to a number of different churches around the region of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And he wanted these churches to know and experience the love of God because he knew that if they did that, it would change everything. It would fix the false teaching that existed in the place, and, and it would draw them into a profound sense of love, not just for God, but for one another as well. The word love is used in his letter 43 different times, but in our passage in chapter 4, 29 times alone. So it's not too hard to say that that's kind of what it's about. So let's read it, and then we'll dive in to the love of God, and I hope it's going to blow you away like it blew me away. Verse 7 of chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and that he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because, that, because he is, is so, also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The Apostle John's writing style is really unique in the New Testament, isn't it? On the one hand, it's so simple and straightforward. On the other hand, it's incredibly profound. He says things in such a black and white way, using hyperbole and absolute statements to kind of smack us upside the head and grab our attention. Now, if you're used to the carefully nuanced writing style, say, of the Apostle Paul or maybe Luke in the New Testament, if you're used to carefully crafted and nuanced arguments that kind of build off each other and connect to one another, then when you read John, it's kind of random and seemingly circular as he talks about things over and over again, adding a shade here and adding a shade there. But here's the truth about John. You never have to wonder what he's getting at. It's straightforward almost to a fault. He'll say things like, if you claim to know and love God, then it better show by how you love other people. Or if you're not a loving person, then we have good reason to question whether or not you know the love that comes from God. God loved us, so therefore we ought to love one another. Simple. In fact, three times he states, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. It's not an optional add-on, but rather the living out of Jesus' own command in John 13, 35, when he says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So here's the big idea for today. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We respond to God's initiating love in our life in such a way where it overflows into the life of those around us. We'll see together as we walk through these verses, the origin of love, verses 7 and 8, the definition of love, verses 9 and 10, and the outcome of love, the last 10 verses, 11 to 21. So the origin, the definition, and the outcome of love. Let's look at the origin of love first, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So there, that answers the question. The origin of love comes from God, but he actually doubles down and, and makes it bigger. He says, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, who does not love does not know God because God is love. He says we ought to love one another because God in his very character, in his very essence, is love. 
Love finds its origin in God's nature, his character, who he is at the core. Now this forces us to slow down and actually think some thoughts about God. John says here, God is love. Now that's very different than saying that God is holy or that God is righteous like the Bible does. An equivalent to that would be God is holiness or God is faithfulness or for him to simply say God is loving and we know that. But he actually says God is love and he says that only of two other things. That God is light and John says that as well. And God is a consuming fire which Hebrews chapter 13 tell us. The Bible never says that God is holiness or that God is faithfulness. Those are attributes that he possesses, not necessarily something that is core to who he is. But now it says here that at the essence of what makes up God is a loving being. Why do you think that God at his very core is called love? John Stott says it this way. It is true that the words God is love mean not that loving is only one of God's many activities, but rather that all his activity is loving activity, and that therefore, if he judges, he judges in love. Yet if his judging is in love, his loving is also in justice. He whose love is light and fire as well, far from condoning sin, his love has found a way to expose it because he is light, and to consume it because he is fire without destroying the sinner." but rather saving him. And so if God is love, then this necessitates at the very core of who God is, relationship, to a certain degree or another. There has to be an object or a person of his love. Now, does that mean then that God created the world because he was lonely? That God created us because he just needed to have someone to love? Some people might say that, but it's actually not true. What then is the object of God's eternal love before anything was spoken into being? This is where we're going to get deep, so buckle up, okay? The nature of God is one of Trinity. One God and three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelling forever in a loving union. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they're all one God. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. If you can't fully understand it, do you think you can actually fully explain and understand the God who spoke this world into being? There's so many things even in the world that he created that we don't know. So at the essence of God, if there's a little bit of mystery, that's okay. Okay? But the nature of God as Trinity, as three distinct persons, gives us insight into how God can be both, how God can be love at his very essence. God is independent in that he doesn't need us, and he's relational, but his love is fully satisfied within the person of who he is as a Godhead. I'll talk more on that a little bit later, because actually, the cool thing is we're invited into that. But this is an important part of who God is, and it says that God is love. And so the origin of love, that love, is his very character and his very nature. Therefore, if we're to know that love, we ought to become loving people. That's the point. But have you ever found that sometimes people treat the idea or the concept of love as like a, a junk drawer term that they can fill with whatever they want? Whatever feels loving to me, that's what love is, right? I mean, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. The great philosopher of 1993, Hathaway, said, or all we need is love, love, love. All we need is the Beatles or maybe uh, Jackie DeShannon. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. You guys know all these things. All right. But here's the thing. If God is at his core love, then he actually gets to define for us what love is. 
And he does. In verses 9 and 10. Now, a lot of people who think that love is just this vague idea of whatever feels loving to me also treat God like it's this empty junk drawer term that I get to fill with whatever I want. That my God is like this and my God is like this. No, God is who God is, and he reveals himself who he is. It's whether we have a right or wrong understanding of that. We don't get to determine who God is based on whatever we feel in any given moment. God is who he is, and he reveals that to us. So what is the definition of love we see in verses 9 and 10? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Some of you guys are thinking, Pastor Kyle, I thought you said John had simple words and simple language. Well, actually, the idea of propitiation was was something that every Jewish person knew. It was baked into their entire sacrificial system, that, that they couldn't simply approach a holy God on the basis of their own goodness or their own moral performance. They needed someone to bear the sin in their place. And so when they offered a sacrifice to God and that animal's blood was shed, that animal figuratively became a propitiation, a wrath-bearing substitute that would bear the wrath of God for sin so that they could approach a holy God in worship. But now we read that God shows his love by sending his son into this broken world. He pursues us, whether or not we've pursued him. And that the apex of that love is demonstrated when the Son, the perfect Son, became the wrath-bearing substitute for our sin. Meaning that when Jesus died on that Roman cross, he bore in his own body the the punishment that you and I deserved. He became the wrath-bearing substitute in our place so that God can uphold his justice while being a good judge and at the same time release mercy and forgiveness to sinners like you and me. We call that good news. And not only then are we declared not guilty in God's sight, but actually Jesus, the Son, lays down a perfect, righteous life that is credited to us by faith so that my sin is placed on him, his perfect righteousness is placed on me, so that when God sees me, he declares me righteous in Jesus. All of my sin has been dealt with once and for all. And now I have a righteousness laid down for me so that when God looks at me, he looks at me through the lens of his Son. And he says, my Son... My daughter with whom I'm well pleased. All of those things are ours in Christ. Now, do you think that's loving? You better believe it. In fact, that is the very heart and definition of love. It is giving yourself in self-sacrificial love for another's benefit. But there's more to love than simply self-sacrifice and self-giving. It's a huge part of life, but it's also a feeling of affection or delight in another person. More on that in just a second. So love finds its origin in the very nature of who God is. Love is most clearly revealed or manifested in God the Father's willingness to send his son into the world and the son's self-sacrificial love toward us. So that actually then should produce a different kind of outcome. It should produce something in those who have experienced his love. The outcome of his love is the last 10 verses. We'll see four clear outcomes. First, we love one another, verse 11 and 12. Second, we abide in this Trinitarian love, or we get to experience this Trinitarian love, and that is pretty stinking awesome. I can't wait to explain that. Third, we are not driven by fear. And fourth, we see that loving one another is not an optional add-on to experiencing God's love, but rather the, the outcome that happens when we experience it. So, we love one another, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we 
also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So if God loved us with the kind of self-giving, self-sacrificial love in his son, then we also ought to love one another with the same kind of self-giving, self-sacrificial love, putting our own needs aside and putting someone else's needs in front of us. In fact, John goes on to say that when we do that, when we love each other in a self-sacrificial way, like Jesus did to us, we are revealing to each other a bit of the unseen God at his very nature. God's love then abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the abiding in God or abiding in his love, but there's something in verse 12 there that kind of strikes me as a little odd. He says that God's love is perfected in us. Does that mean that until we show the love of God to other people, there's something deficient about God's love? Something not quite perfect that needs to be perfected? See, if you thought that, it would actually be wrong. God's love is perfect, but it is perfected in the sense that it is completed or more fully revealed when we actually demonstrate and show the love of God to other people. God's love doesn't need to be perfected, but it does need to be manifested or revealed to other people so that they can see and experience it. So a better way to say that would be that God's love is revealed or completed when we love one another in a self-sacrificial way. Think of it this way. It's like God has written the check and we cash it when we love one another. There's a passage in Colossians chapter 1 that maybe will give us a little insight into this. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Colossae that he, that he hasn't been to, but he, he, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for Jesus' sake because they are filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions to you. And what he means by that is not that Jesus' suffering was somehow insufficient, but that the Colossian people didn't get to see Jesus suffer. And so a manifestation or a revealing of that, a way that it is filling up what's lacking in their experience of that is Paul's willingness to go and suffer himself in order to make Christ known for them. His willingness to to suffer at their hands in order to proclaim to them this incredible message. That that fills up, in many ways, what was lacking in their experience. In the same way here, the love of God is being perfected or completed by being demonstrated to those that we love when we love other people created in his image in a self-sacrificial way. Does that make sense? You with me? All three of you? All right. But there's a different kind of love here, and I'm going to need you to buckle up a little bit because it's going to go deep. We don't want to drown, but it's worth it, I promise. God's love is completed. In, well, God's love, it says in verse 12, abides in us. And verses 13 to 17 tell us all about our abiding in or experiencing of the Trinitarian love of God. So let me read it, and then I'll I'll try to explain it as best I can. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So even in verses 13 and 14, you see this idea of the Trinity that's named in the Spirit and the Father and the Son. We're invited into that in 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 a crazy way. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, we confess that. We see that because the Spirit has been working. And what does Jesus do? He kind of reveals to us the Father and the Father's love. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this... 
is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. You can't read these verses without seeing an explicit reference to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the nature of God himself. But the crazy part is that we are invited in to experience the love of God at the, at the ground level of the Trinity. That's what abiding is about. The way that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit empowers and loves both and glorifies both. You see, in the, in the Gospels, Jesus says, I do nothing except what the Father has given me to do. I say nothing except what the Father has given me to say. What is the best way to glorify the Father? Is to delight in the Son. What's the best way to, to delight in the Son? Or to, what does the Son want to do? He wants to glorify the Father. How does he have the power to do that? The Spirit is empowering him to do that. You, you can't talk about one without talking about the other and the mutual love that is experienced of the nature of who God is. And he says, we know that if we abide in him and he in us, we get to actually experience that. What does the Spirit reveal? He, he reveals to us an awareness of who Jesus is as the Son. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. What does that even mean? Here's my best understanding. And if this is correct, this is absolutely amazing. It's one thing to be loved in a self-sacrificial way. I think we all appreciate that. When someone puts our needs ahead of their own, like in a good friendship, when someone sacrifices their time for the benefit of another, or in a healthy marriage, when a husband lays down his own preferences for the sake of his wife to serve her, or the wife doing the same toward the husband, we appreciate a self-sacrificial love. That's what the best friendships and marriages have at their core. But there's a, there's a deep longing in every single one of us to not just be served, but to be delighted in. To be enjoyed. To be enjoyed and loved for who we are. Not that we don't love another person sacrificing for us and giving of self-giving love, but we really long for them to truly delight and enjoy who we are. Have you ever experienced the opposite of this, maybe? Your friendship with someone means a lot more to you than it does to them. You feel really close to them, but maybe they don't feel really close to you. Or there's a friend circle that you want to be part of, but you always feel a little bit on the outside. Like, I'm not really their friend. And it hurts, doesn't it? Or maybe you've been dumped before, and it was not your choice. It was not a mutual parting. You still really liked them a lot. In your heart of hearts, you want them back, but you don't want them back to love you out of pity. You don't want them to, to, to put your needs ahead of their, of their own so that you're like, well, I guess I will love you because that's what Jesus tells us to do. We'll love each other. That's not what you're looking for. That's not what you long for. You want a mutual sense of love and delight to be experienced and shared. Many of us think God's love for us is just like that. A self-sacrificial love. Yes, he pities me. He knows that I need forgiveness, and so he sends Jesus to forgive me. It's almost like we believe that God does all of that simply to hold his nose and tolerate us. But here's why verses 16 to 17 are so good. 
God invites us into the love and the delight of the Trinity. The purest delight and love and affection and enjoyment that you can get. He says, I love you. Not just in a self-sacrificial way, but in a way in which I actually like you. I actually delight in you. I made you. I formed you. I redeemed you and saved you. And I long to be in relationship with you because I like you. That's very different than simply saying, oh yeah, God tolerates me. And he forgives me. Yes, he loves us in a self-sacrificial way, but the good news of the gospel, I would say even the best news of the gospel, is that God loves us, and he invites us into the most pure and profound experience of love that he himself has, and he says, welcome to the friend group. Welcome to the inner circle. Delight in me. See, the best news of the gospel is not just that we're forgiven of our sins, but rather that we get God. We get to commune with him. We get to experience the triune love and we are invited in. That's why the the gospel, when it's only shared as a message of forgiveness of sins, is a distortion of the gospel. Especially the one that says God forgives your sins so that you can go and live however you want. What that does is it actually turns Jesus into an idol giver. Actually, the good news of the gospel is that we get to know God. And we are invited in and we get to experience the most profound of love that doesn't push us away or treat us as other but welcomes us in. That's amazing. It's so amazing that like those who actually know that, if they were offered heaven without God, you'd be like, that's not heaven. Because he's not there. What makes heaven heaven is that God in all of his goodness is there. Heaven without God, pass. When we realize that and his love is then perfected in us, what happens is that we no longer fear his judgment, but rather fully and beautifully experience his love. We're not driven by fear. Verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We do not live in fear of judgment, but rather rest in his love and his acceptance of us. This is where John's writing style is somewhat problematic and challenging for us. Because all throughout the Bible, we are told and even commanded to fear the Lord. We are commanded to to fear him so that we don't fear other things. And when we're commanded to fear the Lord, it means that we are to revere him, to stand in a sense of awe and wonder and a healthy fear. The fear that John is speaking about here is not the fear of the Lord, but rather the fear of judgment. And he says, if we have experienced and abide in his love, perfect love casts out that kind of fear. We know that we're accepted, and we no longer fear judgment. When that happens, then his... Love has been completed or experienced in us. Now, verse 19 refers and comes back to our big idea again. Notice how John is just very cyclical in his writing. He says, we love because he first loved us. And that's the thing. Is the only way that we're going to actually love one another, the way that God has called us to love, is to first experience, experience, not just know about, experience his love. His love for us then overflows in love for him and love for each other. And so he closes, not with that big idea, but closes once again with the charge that this isn't an optional thing. He says in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we do not overflow the love of God for our brothers and sisters, then John concludes there is something deficient in our experience of God's love. How do we get that? Well, it's really hard for me to observe whether or not you've experienced love from God, whether or not you're regularly experiencing that with him. But I can observe whether or not you love your brother or your sister. I can, ex- I can experience and observe whether or not it actually overflows out of you. And what John is saying here is that if in, in the absence of any kind of love overflowing, we should rightly question whether or not you've experienced his love in the first place. Because that's the natural overflow of knowing and being loved by God is that it flows out and is perfected in our horizontal relationships with each other. And sometimes that means a self-sacrificial love because we're hard to love sometimes. I know I am. But often that comes in sheer delight and enjoyment of one another and a willingness then to put their needs ahead of our own. See, if you look at verses 8 to 12, you see that it concludes with a charge to love one another because God has loved us. And this is in light of that self-sacrificial love of Jesus that is defined as God giving his son as a propitiation for us. And if it were to stop there, I think we would all just maybe stop it. Well, I'll serve you. I'll put your needs ahead of my own. But then we're actually invited in to experience the love that God has for himself. We're invited in and then called to overflow that love to our brothers and sisters as well. See, the proper way to respond to God's love is to experience it and let it overflow. Some sinful ways that we sometimes respond to God's love is the idea of pride, for instance. Look at how God loves me. I must be so great. Are you kidding me? Or doubt. Many of us wrestle that God could actually love us and like us like that. And so it, it, it comes out in an embracing of this in a halfway kind of way. God, I can see how you love me sacrificially, but you really have to hold your nose when it comes to getting close. It's not how God wants us to respond. Can you imagine if your kids responded to you that way? Third, the wickedness. God loves me so I can do whatever I want. As if anyone who's experienced that kind of love wants to go around trifling with other forms later. It's like eating a gourmet wedding feast and then stopping at Taco Bell on the way home. It's ridiculous. You're like, I like Taco Bell. Yeah, but come on. It's not filet mignon. So what do I want you to do with this today? I want you to experience God's love. And here's the conundrum. It doesn't matter how eloquent I am. I can't make that happen. The Spirit has to. And so my prayer is that maybe if you understand even a glimpse of that, that you might begin by the Spirit's power to experience it. Because that's where it starts. That's ground zero. And then I want you to love other people like God loves you. That means genuinely delighting in them and in a self-sacrificial way. And when we experience God's love like that, and we begin to overflow it toward one another, you know what that makes us as a church? The most loving community in our city. 
that even if people don't believe quite yet what we believe or they're, they're a little hesitant, they long to be loved like that because God's created them with that longing. Let me pray. God, I wish there was magic words that I could say, and there's not. But we're trusting now that your spirit will come and awaken in us an awareness of how deeply you love us. God, when we look to the cross, we can't for a second think that our sin isn't a big deal. But when we look to the cross, we can't for a second doubt that you love us and how you feel about us. Thank you that you sacrifice yourself for us and you choose to delight in us. May we experience that and overflow that into each other's lives. Help us, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.